Welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isger, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And today we have Trina Tadaros with us, who leads HRI's Regulatory Center. Welcome, Trina. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, Trina, we're getting uh, to a milestone here with a year into the pandemic, or at least the way most people are measuring it publicly. And part of today is really talking about where we are. And one of the ways that we can get into that is through a meeting that happened recently of ASIP. So tell our listeners who's ASIP. And what yeah. did they talk about? <laughs> sure, sure. So yeah, it's it's kind of amazing to be talking about ASIP and their recommendations for immunization practices a year in because we have immunizations to have recommendations for practices for, which is a scientific marvel that we have uh, vaccinations so quickly. So ASIP is the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. It's a committee of the CDC, and it is made up of medical and public health experts who develop recommendations on the use of vaccines for the general public in the U.S. And these go on to influence policies adopted by states. They have vast ramifications in terms of what kinds of vaccines are given in doctor's offices for children and and what's recommended for schools, things like that. So it's a very influential committee. And they met on March 1st to talk about the vaccination campaign so far. And it was a fascinating meeting. And so we'll talk a little bit about what they talked about. Well, I think that's a great way to put it a year in and we get a chance to talk about this scientific marvel of all the vaccines. So let's get into it because I think a lot of listeners want to know how is the campaign rollout going, especially in light of a panel of experts really looking at it. One of the things that we learned at the meeting was that as of February 27th, 72 million doses of the vaccines have been given in the U.S. So, of course, this doesn't mean that 72 million people have been fully vaccinated. The two, as of February 27th, most of these were the mRNA vaccines. And so those are two-dose vaccines. So 72 million of those have been given out in the U.S. as of February 27th. We learned that the CDC estimates that doses by the end of March will be about 240 million total, and that would be about 220 million doses of the mRNA vaccines and another 20 million or so doses of the vaccine that was just issued in EUA by the FDA about a week ago. And we hear from the Biden administration that the expectation is that we'll have quite a surge in supply in the months ahead and that every American who wants to be vaccinated will be able to sometime this spring, early summer. So this is all great news. Of course, there are challenges with trying to get the entire population of the United States vaccinated, or at least the adult or 16 plus population of the United States vaccinated. And so the ASIP committee, they also discussed some of these challenges, which were pretty interesting, actually. So, Trina, let's talk about some of those challenges that the committee discussed. And I think most of them center around the fact that these vaccines do require two doses. So what were some of the questions that were being asked around those two-dose regimens? One of the more interesting discussions during this meeting was when the committee took up the question of whether there should be a recommendation to delay the second dose of these two-dose vaccines and 
whether we should recommend only a single dose of the two-dose vaccines for individuals who already had a SARS-CoV-2 infection. You know, they were infected, they recovered, and now do they only need one dose? And both of these questions have been raised by public health experts, by folks in the media. And so they discussed these two and their discussion was really quite interesting. So the background on the first question, whether we should delay that second dose, is that other countries have done this. So we have sort of a precedent in other countries where they have decided to delay that second dose. And the idea behind it is we'll boost our supply because instead of giving that second dose to all those folks who got the first dose, we'll just add in more first doses. So that's one idea behind it. But the current guidance from the government is that there should not be a delay right now. So that was what they were kind of wondering about. So the pros, they said, were that one dose could provide protection to a larger number of people and that if one dose protection is high and persists, then this could actually prevent more infections and deaths because the more people that you have had that one dose, you know, the more people are protected. And so the idea is we'll get protection faster for the population. Also, the other pro is that boosting would still likely be effective even at a longer interval. So those are the pros. The cons, they said, is that, first of all, this kind of policy would contradict the emergency use authorization for these two-dose vaccines. So that's complicated because the EUA is very specific about having a two-dose series three or four weeks apart, depending on which one you get. And also, we don't know the effect how long the protection lasts after just one dose. So we don't have good data on that. The committee, in the end, decided that there's insufficient data to increase the recommended intervals and that we need more information. So basically, need more data, hope we get it, we'll reconsider if the data sort of lead us to reconsider it. So that's the first issue. The second one they considered was the single dose of the vaccine for folks who have already had a SARS-CoV-2 infection and who presumably already have some natural immunity there. And they, again, I'd say they looked at the pros and the cons, and the idea was they could free up some second doses by not, quote-unquote, wasting them on folks who only got one dose. That was one sort of line of thinking. The other one is that folks who have already gotten one dose would not have to have the second dose and sort of deal with the side effects that could come up with that. So it would sort of spare them that. So that was on the pro column. The con column is, again, we just don't know enough about what the effect is on folks who've already had the infection. So there's limited data. It would contradict the EUA once again. And so there were some other cons they discussed. And in the end, they landed exactly the way they did with the first issue. We want some more data. As of now, we just don't know enough to make any kind of changes and recommendations. So that's kind of how they settled out on that. And so nothing changes policy-wise. But we hope to see more studies in the coming months and years, maybe we will have some new thinking around those. Well, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned about the data, and it's really all about the data and including now some data around real-world evidence. How are these vaccines performing in the real world and outside of the clinical trials? And I believe you had mentioned that the committee had talked about some of the early safety signals. Could you tell us what some of those findings were? We have a system called vSafe, and that is a way of reporting side effects that you experience after you are given any of the vaccines. And this data is collected and sifted for safety signals. So what we found is that 
so far, the data that was presented is on the mRNA vaccines, that the reactogenicity, so the sort of side effects, profiles of these vaccines in the V-safe monitoring, so post-vaccination, are consistent with what was seen in the clinical trials. And so this is good news. Nothing new has arisen as far as was reported here. And that anaphylaxis after the vaccines has been reported to uh, a different system of reporting, but it's still very rare. And so this is, again, a good news kind of situation. No other safety signals for serious adverse events have been detected in VAERS, which is this other system of reporting vaccine-related reactions. And also, importantly, they have data on thousands of pregnant women who have been vaccinated. And that, again, there's been no signals yet of any kind of extra safety concerns in that population. And of course, that's of enormous interest to everyone to make sure that pregnancies and pregnant women are not especially vulnerable or would be affected by the vaccine. So far, there's been no sign of that. In fact, they have a special system, a V-safe pregnancy registry, and they follow up with women who register and they follow them along in their pregnancies and even after they deliver their babies. And then they use that information to talk about what the outcomes of those pregnancies were and then compare them to what would be expected in sort of normal times. And so what they found, they have about 1,800 women enrolled in their registry and the background rates for all kinds of outcomes, everything from gestational diabetes, miscarriage, stillbirth, eclampsia, preterm birth, all of these are the same or even less than what might be expected with a background rates. So anyway, that is all good news in terms of the vaccines. The safety signals so far are very good for pregnant women. And so that was presented at the meeting as well. I think they had, they said they had 30,000 women in Be Safe that have self-reported side effects, things like that. And so that's quite a large number. I think it's amazing to imagine that 30,000 women are amongst the 72 million doses that have been given by the end of February. Well, Trina, I want to turn the topic here as we come into our final question of the podcast today. And you have always had a, a very intense interest in medical history and, and health history. And I was hoping you could kind of put on that lens or look through that lens as we round the corner here to the first year of living with this pandemic and to maybe give us a few comments on what you think we've learned and thinking about the history of pandemics, what do you think we'll take away? Yeah, I think it is fascinating to look at the history of pandemics because they've been with humans for, you know, millennia. And so we can look back and see what, say, folks did in the 16th century in Europe, what they did during the quote unquote Black Death typhoid in the United States in the 19th century, you know, the 1918, 1919 influenza pandemic. We can look at all of these experiences and ask a lot of questions about what we've learned time to time to time. And I think it's kind of a mix. I mean, some of our public health organizations and structures that we use today, we can trace back to the plague in Europe. We can look back and see that some of the recommendations from that period of time actually are very similar to today. Open up windows, things like that. Ventilation. They did not understand and did not have the germ theory back then. They have no idea what was causing the plague. They believed that it was bad air 
And that was sort of their theory. But nevertheless, some of the recommendations were similar. You see mask wearing was politicized in the 1918-1919 flu pandemic, just like now. And just like this time around, it took a while to put that into place and, and some people pushed back. So I think that in a way, the experiences of these pandemics resonate year after, you know, sort of time after time. You can go back over and over and over. I think one of the most incredible things that I've read are accounts of the plague written by people at the time in Europe and the pain and suffering and the tragedy that is described in those writings that are hundreds and hundreds of years old completely resonate with today and the experiences that 500,000 Americans, you know, have lost their lives here in the United States and that their families have felt today and 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 over the past year. And so I think that there's some kind of kinship with our ancestors who have been through this before. It helped shape the societies that we all live in today and the pain is the through line that we all experience as humans going through these epidemics of disease. So anyway, those are my thoughts sort of over the last, about the last year, just looking back through time. And that just my last thought is that these pathogens have been with us thousands of years and they've shaped human civilization in all these different complicated ways. And that we still today, we have these vaccines and antibiotics and antivirals. Some of our antivirals are sort of these wonderful weapons against these tiny mechanisms, but that we still haven't sort of won that battle that we've been fighting for so long. Well, those are some great thoughts to leave us with and and weighty ones for sure. It kind of reminds me of our most recent report on trends in the coming year. And and we titled it, Will a Shocked System Emerge Stronger as a question mark? And I think your kind of bringing us back to history reinforces the idea that a question mark, that we're at a, a crossroads and we can take some of this, what we've learned and change our system and make it more resilient. But of course, if we ignore it, it may be at our peril or at least for a a future generation. So some weighty things to think about one year into the pandemic. Trina, thank you so much for joining us today and providing that information. My pleasure. And for our listeners who want more information or dig a little bit deeper, everything that we have published is available at pwc.com forward slash HRI. And this is Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.